Want to help your teachers save over 10 hours per week? Introduce them to School AI. It's not just a tool, it's a partner in the classroom. With School AI, teachers can plan courses in minutes, get real-time learning data, and provide one-on-one tutoring. Plus, it's free for teachers. Visit SchoolAI.com today. School AI, the classroom operating system of the future. That's SchoolAI.com. Focal Point K-12 is an innovative tool that helps teachers and students manage student portfolios. It provides a digital portfolio for students to store their work, set and track their own learning goals, and earn credentials and industry certifications. The platform also uses blockchain technology to ensure the security and safety of student data. Teachers can use Focal Point K-12's real-time dashboards to track student progress and save time with AI-assisted scoring. To learn more, visit focalpoint.education. Principles. Research shouldn't be a maze for students. Scribble offers a unified platform streaming the research and writing process. It integrates with major educational tools, ensures authentic student work, and provides educators with real-time insights. Elevate your school's academic rigor. Learn more at scribble.com. That's S-C-R-I-B-L-E dot com. Welcome to Transformative Principle, where I help you stop putting out fires and start leading. I'm your host, Jethro Jones. You can follow me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I am so excited for our conversation today. This is part of the Summer of AI series on the B Podcast Network. And we're up to about 30 shows on the B Podcast Network. If you have not checked them out, then you definitely should. There is something for everybody there. And if there's not something for you, why don't you reach out and we can uh, we can start a new podcast. That's what we do. So I would love to Love to chat if you think we're missing something on there. Uh, The show I want to highlight today is called Morning Motivation for Educators. And if you go to morningmotivationedu.com, you will get a daily podcast that is just there to inspire you. I hope what you'll do with this is uh, download it, share it with your teachers when they need a little pick-me-up. If it's appropriate, in fact, what's even better than sharing with your teachers as a whole is sharing one individual episode with one person each day that is incredibly powerful that you think they need to hear. But enough about that. Let's go on to our show today. I have Micah Miner, who's a district administrator over instructional technology and social studies at Maywood Melrose Park Broadview School District 89 in Chicagoland, and uh, maybe the longest district name that I've had on the show so far, uh, even longer than the uh, uh, Fairbanks North Star Borough School District, where I was a principal. Uh, he is a contributing writer for the American Consortium for Equity in Education, uh, which uh, offers uh, so does a yearly awards list of of people who are uh, providing are uh, doing equitable things in their schools and districts. And Transformative Principles is a sponsor of that last year. Um, and he's also a Times Ten uh, Publications author of the book, Harnessing AI for Human-Centered Education. 
Micah, welcome to Transformative Principle. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Jethro. It's a pleasure. I love the conversations you've had. Oh, well, thank you. That means a lot to me. So what do you think people should get out of this conversation that you and I are having today? Um, I think just a basic introduction to what AI literacy could look like um, at a school or district level uh, and how that could impact teachers and students. Some goals, goalposts, milestones for, you know, some ideas for how to start it. And then in addition to that, uh, some conversations of what and how you could use these tools as part of students in their instruction. Those are the two areas I'd like to highlight. Yeah, very good. I, I like the idea of being professionally humble. I, I, when you say, say that, I just, that just makes my heart feel warm. And so I think there's a lot of power in that idea. Uh, listen to the show, enjoy it, because you're going to learn something from that. And we're going to get to my interview with Micah here in just a moment. Time is a precious commodity. As a principal, you know this all too well. Between lesson planning, grading, and providing personalized feedback, the hours in a day can quickly disappear. But what if you could help your teachers get some of that time back? Introducing School AI. School AI is not just a tool, it's your teacher's partner in the classroom. Help your teacher save over 10 hours a week on busy work, allowing them to focus on what they do best, teaching. With School AI, teachers can plan courses in minutes, get real-time data on learning, and even provide one-on-one -on -one tutoring for every student. School AI also provides a FERPA-compliant chat GPT experience. But that's not all. School AI's co-teacher feature is like a personal assistant, adapting daily lessons to student interests, checking for understanding, and even automating parent communication. And the best part, it's free for teachers. So if you're ready to reclaim your time and transform your school with the power of AI, visit schoolai.com today. School AI, the classroom operating system of the future. Visit them at schoolai.com. So Micah, tell us your perspective on what you think AI literacy is and needs to be for where we're at right now, understanding that it's going to change in two, three, five years drastically from where it is now? Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. I have about six, well, five things that I think should be a part of AI literacy. But like you said, generative AI is like only around one. I mean, we're looking at it multimodal, you know, two. Um, there's going to be a lot of different layers to this. But as of now, I think the first step in any kind of AI literacy is uh, we have to demystify what AI is and how AI tools work. It's a little difficult considering, you know, there's black box ways in which it actually calculates its, its responses, but we really need to start demystifying it and realizing that it is not magic. I remember the first time I explored this tool, but you know, 10 months ago or whatever, like many of us, I was so upset that something could know something that I thought I knew better that I was yeah. like, but with it, and I was trying to figure out, like, I, I was doing really like niche history. Um, I teach African-American history a lot. My wife's African-American. And so like, I was trying to find really specific details and I was like, man, it's really good. And then I like just that initial step as we interact with generative AI, it feels like magic and it's really not right. It's, it's a mimicking parrot as many of us have said throughout the past uh, 10 or 11 months uh, as we've studied it. So we want, we want to demystify it. And that's a K-12 conversation. Um, there's a great, uh, way for us to to even focus just on one day a year called the Day of AI that MIT has been you know promoting for the past couple of years now reminds me of uh, the early 2010s when we were doing like our code 
Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it's like everybody needs to learn how to code. Um, so we definitely need to start creating steps to demystify it. Um, hey, uh, for- Micah, yeah. uh, sorry to interrupt, but just real quick, I, I think that's really fascinating because the we don't want to go down the path of everybody needs to learn to code because that's not actually the answer. And everybody needs to learn how to use AI is actually not the answer. What I believe everybody needs to be able to do is understand what coding is and how it works and that it's telling the computer what to do. Everybody needs to understand what the AI is and what it's capable of. What's your response to just that shortened idea? I like it. I do think that many people throughout our our future lives, as it builds, is going to be interacting with AI in many different ways, modes, and different modalities and different perspectives. I do think that uh, we do need to realize that just like we can't all do coding, we don't all need to necessarily use generative AI on a daily basis. Uh, but I do think it's an important component of our past, our present and future lives, especially our kids. So I'd agree with you, um, if I'm understanding your, your question or your statement correctly, that we all need to know about it, but not everybody needs to become an expert in it. Mm-hmm. We all need to know how it works. We all need to understand a little bit of the process, kind of like our history or how we approach, you know, uh, science, but not everybody needs to become an expert. Oh, but I think calling it AI literacy, that definition shows its importance, that it should be something that's accessible for everyone to understand what it is. Yeah, I I, I think that's really a, a good way to approach it and a good way to be thinking about it, that if you, if you want to be an expert, sure, go ahead. But for you to think that you have to be an expert or else you're going to miss out on something is is definitely not the right way to think about it. And I feel like that is what a lot of the narrative around it is that you that you do have to be an expert. So talk to us a little bit about um, about what AI literacy should look like for our young kids, middle kids, older kids. What's what's your perspective on that, and and how you, how you feel what you feel they should know not not how to teach it to them or anything like that, but what do they need to know? I will try to distill this because there are so many ideas that come through my mind when I say it. And we, as people who are in leadership and curriculum and in social studies and everything else and instructional tech, we, we, uh, we pretend that people should know a lot of things. And I don't think everybody needs to know everything. Um, to teach kids about, uh, AI, they need to understand one, that it doesn't think like us. It's just, it's just number one. It may sound conversational to you, but the way it's in, if it's not intelligent, yeah, but the way it's interacting with words, text, images, or whatever is not really human. And I think that that's an important element to highlight to our, even our younger ones. Um, because what we will see in the next 15 to 20 years, um, and I think Snap has this digital AI that uh, my wife, who is a teacher, has seen kids try to use a cheat on things. Um, we're going to think that AI is something that we're going to call friends or companions. and those things can be very helpful to mental health. Those relationships can be something that uh, can be referenced and be a part of your life. But it's also important to realize that that's not a human. That's not a human that you're interacting with. It's a robot that's been trained to interact with you like a human. And for us, um, the book that I 
title that I chose to go with is Harnessing AI for a Human-Centered Education. And as all of us, we want to keep the human-centeredness of it um, at the forefront. Yeah. A little, bit off, a little bit off topic, but I just think it's important for us to realize that we want to teach kids that uh, robots are cool, but they are not human. That is an important element. Not to, you know, treat them poorly. That's not what I'm saying, because that's just being mean, but realizing that. And I think that we need to start at a young age, especially the impressionable young ages, as they begin um, having friends. I think we had similar conversations with the metaverse a few years ago. Remember before it died? <laughs> we yeah. were all talking about the metaverse and AR and VR and all those things um, that we can't find our light inside of a metaverse and a fake reality. We need to still be connected to our reality. So I think that that's another one, another part that we need to focus on. We need to teach people that it is a wonderful resource. It is a great tool. It is what you could call a robot or a bot. And it can do some really great things when it's partnered with people. End of conversation. Um, so that's, that's kind of where I sit on that. And how to approach that is, um, you know, is to teach students to uh, respect it in that way and understand it as a technology and not as a friend. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's valuable. I appreciate you distilling that down into something that is, that is manageable and understandable for people. It's easy to become esoteric and, and have these grand ideas and think that, okay, here are all the things that we need to do and all the standards and all that kind of stuff, which especially as educators, we, we really struggle with keeping things succinct and clear. But I think that that, that's really important. So, uh, it's a tool that does great when it's working with a human, it is not a human itself, but it's been programmed to interact like a human. And there is a difference, uh, at least still, maybe they'll be different in the future, but we'll see. So well, I, yeah, so, uh, so I think those, those are really good points. Picture this, a student drowning in tabs, tools, and notes, struggling to piece together a research project. Sounds familiar, right? Now, imagine all of that streamlined under one roof. That's Scribble. Scribble is more than just a tool. It's a game changer. Students can curate, annotate, cite, and write all in one place. Collaborative annotations? Check. Automatic citations? Check. Real-time feedback for educators? You bet. And the best part is, it's not just about making tasks easier. It's about freeing up time for higher-level learning and critical thinking. Are you worried about AI plagiarism? With Scribble, students show their authentic work process, making it genuine and credible. And I mentioned it won the Soup's Choice Award for College and Career Readiness. So if you're ready to transform the way your school approaches research and writing, head over to scribble.com and see the magic for yourself. That's S-C-R-I-B-L-E.com. I want to shift gears a little bit and um, talk about how teachers can plan and use tech, this technology uh, in a way that that makes it so that it's worthwhile. And I don't want to spend like we've talked a lot on the podcast in the Summer of AI series about uh, how teachers can use it to to help them and make their lives better. I want to take a little different approach and talk about how teachers can plan, understanding that the kids are going to use it, whether they have quote unquote permission or not, and and how they can be open and upfront about it. And just to give a, a little background, I uh, one of the episodes that I did was on somebody else's podcast where I was talking to teens. And 
his audience is all all teenagers and their parents. And the thing that I said was you as teens should go talk to your teachers and ask them how you can use uh, AI, what it could look like, and be open about the conversation instead of saying, I'm just going to use this to check off this box. So what would be your advice about how teachers can plan differently knowing that this is here? And, uh, and, and what would be your ideas around that? Well, I like that question a lot. Um, we can't hide from it. There was a Chronicle of Higher Education um, article written in like early June where it was a, grad, a student who had just graduated from college and he said, you have no idea how much we use this, right? And we have all these stories of like, you know, uh, cheating and, you know, a professor putting everything in chat. You could just say, did you write this? And they said, yes. Like that's, that's a failed pedagogy. It's not reflective of the reality of our teens, especially when even with Snap, they're including or have an AI tool in there that can be used to answer quick, basic questions. So uh, I think teens should be a part of the conversation. I have two of them at home that are both girls in high school. And, uh, you know, I've consulted them throughout the process of doing research and seeing how their friends are doing it and just, you know, sharing them with it. Uh, and, and I think as educators, we need to one, and this is as a school leader or even as a classroom teacher, you need to have really clear, and I'm working with this with my, our own district and lots of other districts, we need to have academic integrity policies and we need to have academic policies in place for generative AI, but it needs to be in parts like um, the examples that I put is, uh, the ones that I'm proposing for our board is, you know, here are the areas that I think you can use AI tools and here are the areas where I don't want you to. Like assessment has to be redefined as a process. We are going to have benchmarks where we check in. Hey, if a student is struggling um, who may have um, sped or he may be struggling because he's an English learner and he's having uh, really panic attacks staring at a blank page, but he has to write about uh, the similarities between Nelson Mandela and Martin Luther King Jr. It's okay in the beginning of the process as part of the teaching and learning is that they consult tools to help them brainstorm. Conmigo is a good example of like an instructive AI tool. Uh, Pathback does it, Writable, Turnitin. They're all trying to figure out ways to help brainstorm with the writing process. Character.ai I'll talk about later. But uh, there's nothing wrong with students consulting. Instead of having, it's not everyone has a, a, a thought partner. So those AI tools can serve as that. I don't consider that academic dishonesty because I think if we clearly define in our um, assessment or in our assignments, hey, here are the areas in this project that I want to articulate explicitly. You can use AI, but here are the areas where I don't want to use it. That's the kind of protocols we need to start putting into place, Jethro, so that we can have teachers and school leaders and district leaders incorporate it thoughtfully as part of the learning process, but still not letting it rip off the learning process. Mm -hmm. And I think those conversations, we're not at a point where I would put it in any kind of curriculum map, but those conversations I think should be starting now on how we can map out ways to teach kids how to use it. And that's the first part of the question. We have to teach them how to use it. They're using it anyway. I have three terms I really like to share when I have this conversation is we need to learn how to teach and use it ethically. We need to model ethics. So the kids understand what that means. We need to be transparent when we use it. And then we also need to make sure that it is not uh, taking away from the learning process. So we have to make sure it's transparent. We want to make sure it's ethical. We want to make sure that it is not taking away from the learning process. I have this framework in the book um, called LEAP framework. 
um, which kind of goes through that process. It doesn't matter what you call it. The point is you need to have a process. The, the second element of this conversation is to make sure that we uh, are modeling those things ourselves. I did curriculum mapping this summer, as I do every summer with my, uh, we're transitioning to standard base grading for some of my grade levels. And so I've used, uh, it was in this case, it was chat GPT 4.5 and Claude 2 as part of my uh, cat standards categorization. And so my curriculum map says at the bottom, there are my assessments alignment documents that I use that this tool, this, uh, this assessment alignment document was used in conjunction with AI, with AI as a part of the process. And I think that that's the kind of small things that we need to model in our classrooms, in our schools, or in our districts, so that kids are start taking notes on what and where and how we're using it, in addition to the fact that they need to be taught how to use it well. A long, long conversation. We don't have to go further, but you're kind of getting my point on how we yeah. have to be and not just implied. We need to be thoughtful and critical on how and when and where, um, and it can't be something that's just random. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is the thing that's so hard is that teaching ethics is challenging, right? And how do you teach people to have values and live align- in alignment with their values and make good choices when we have such a hard time agreeing on so many things in in our country and and this is this is an area where what one person may see as completely unethical use of it somebody else will say well you're just a, living in this old paradigm where you know you still think wikipedia is something that students shouldn't be using now i'm not saying that they should be using it for everything but like you said in the beginning why not go to wikipedia and learn something about that topic and look at some resources and dive deeper into into something so how do you how do you balance that aspect of it that some of it is adults saying no we can't do this but that's just really a cover for bad pedagogy to begin with and how do you how do you balance between those two does that question make sense at all it's a great question. I just wish that um, if we were all benevolent dictators, we could just make it happen, right? Right. Unfortunately, right. Uh, um, I write a lot um, about social studies education as well um, for ASAD and other places, um, Illinois ASCD. And so we're so divided even in my state of Illinois, which is a relatively blue state. I talked about this on another podcast, I think about three weeks ago, where we talked about how we just, the polarization has gotten to a point where we just can't get along. Um, and the only, the only um, um, answer I can have is I'm working with some wonderful leaders in my, uh, my region and in, in my state who all of us kind of came together and have been working on a few things. And we know kind of each other through some of the events and conferences we've attended. And we kind of loosely organize this kind of like peer group that can help us. And one's from downstate, you know, one's from the central part of the state. Small, more, more rural. And then there's us and I have people that I can like email. Hey, what do you think about this? You know, and I think that that's the kind of as professionals in education, we need to lean on our networks that we already have, even if those networks are have different political views than my own to be able to kind of come up with some versions of consensus. My very, uh, I would say, liberal version of how we should be explicit in our AI and or where to use AI in our in our teaching may not vibe well with an AP teacher who's like, I've been teaching AP history, U.S. history for 50 years, and I need to make sure that they do it the same way because that's how they get a three or a four. Like, uh, I think that it's important they do have outdated pedagogy. And I think we need to be more professionally humble 
because the mm -hmm. times have changed so much. And we need to have local leadership, whether that be at the school or grade level. I was a department chair, you know, principals, APs, superintendents, assistant soups, coordinators, little lowly people like me who just work on instruction and tech. It doesn't matter who we need to have local policies that reflect our communities while at the same time linking those local policies to the broader conversation of best practices. Your podcast, I was trying to read through some of the things that you, you've been doing with the Summer of AI series. And I think it's really important that we have this conversation. This is that conversation is having on the West Coast. It's having it, there's people having it on the East Coast. There's wonderful people from Canada. Dr. Eaton's a great example uh, of doing some great things with her six tenets of post-plagiarism and how we attack a world that's a very different world than where we grew up and that academic integrity question. And I think over time we'll get there, Jethro, because I'm going to choose to be an optimist, but mm -hmm. local conversations are going to be important along with our regional, when I say region, like, you know, your county or your, you know, whatever region you have in, in, in the context that you are that are, that's not quite state, um, because we're not going to get any federal and we may not get many state regulations anytime soon about this. Um, you, you, you are, I'm sure you're aware of the U.S. Department of Education's AI 73 page document they released in last May, which was, a, which was really, really helpful. Um, and at least we can start there to start the conversation with our different polarization people and just say, Hey, here's, here's what we want to want to have a conversation about. And I think we'll get there, but it's so new and it changes so often. This is going to take three to five years. I just hope we have three to five years of like yeah. of having the conversation before it becomes something totally different. Mm -hmm. um, than what it is now with generative AI. Cause this is, like I said, this is only round one of a much larger change. I would say almost a fourth industrial revolution uh, in a way of how potentially things could go when it comes to what teaching and learning and living looks like. You, you hit the nail on the head for me with the uh, fourth industrial revolution. This is really changing a lot of things uh, in, in powerful ways and like like you said, we're barely scratching the surface. Like just the fact that that a whole website copy can be created from uh, from generative AI, and you know you can have an idea for a website and put it out there and make it look like it is a real uh, bona fide business or entity that's been around for several years um, is is really quite powerful. That you can do it in such a fast and low barrier to entry way that you haven't been able to before you you've always been able to find shortcuts and things like that to anything that we're trying to do um but this the speed at which it can create things you know if you want to uh play a fun mind game imagine how much uh text has been created uh in the history of the world up until 2022 and then think about how much has been created since uh november of 2022 when OpenAI released ChatGPT and how just how much text is now out there, especially with how uh, verbose and long-winded these generative AI tools are, that it just goes on and on and on. And th this is so important to be thinking about because like, we don't want to have to sift through more text just to get to where, where we want to be. Uh, the other thing that I that I appreciate about what you said is that we have to be focused on local policies and, and policies that reflect the community that we're living in. And if, if we're not starting there, then we're going to adopt things from other places with 
other values that will mean nothing and won't be followed anyway. And so as people are want to do, uh, my favorite story is someone who wrote me and said, hey, will you help me learn how to use ChatGPT to make a policy about not my students not using ChatGPT? And like, that's the that's the best. I'm sorry to everybody who's been listening to the podcast and you've heard me t say that so many times, but Mike is new. He hasn't heard this yet. And that's right. So like that idea of let's use uh, this other thing to tell us what to do. And because it's good enough, it makes us think that it's right. And that's not necessarily the case. I like that statement, that last statement you said, the ver like the verbiage itself can sound convincing doesn't mean it's right. It's that element of people like uh, uh, who are uh, worried about the misinformation and the kinds of things that could really impact like voting and all these kinds of things. We want shoe and honest elections. We want our people to be represented. All those things are important. And, and like you said, it's really important for if you're going to use the tool to do something and believe it, although I would never bet everything. Um, why would you expect your students to not be able to reference it? The, 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 it's like I said, let's be humble professionals, realizing that it's okay that the world has changed since 20 years ago when I was in my, you know, elementary education or, you know, secondary education uh, degree from my bachelor's. Like, it's okay that times have changed. We, I'm in my, my district has, um, I've done three professional development so far on AI tools. Uh, we're trying to build it into our, we of course want to go through the board. I've been transparent with my superintendent. He's let me, you know, have conversations with it. Him and I are presenting the end of this week in Springfield, Illinois, our, our capital on the uh, Illinois IASA. It's basically school leaders conference about this because like you said, that local control is important, but we should still be honest. If we want to use a tool and not let kids use a tool, I think that's a double standard. And I think we need to not put up those double standards. Um, our kids are using the tool no matter what you do, period. So why not have a conversation about it? You know, it's it's safer. It's more informative for you to allow your students to be a part of the conversation, provide opportunities for you in your instruction and assessment to find ways to do it. I know I'm going to stop in a second, but there is if you're really worried about data privacy, like we all are, especially student data privacy, as far as what the laws are across the states, like 43 states have some version of a data privacy for kids on top of our federal um, our federal um, laws. There's a, you know, there's a little thing called Byte, which is from jailbreak uh, edu. I don't remember. Um, but it 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 doesn't take any kids' information, and you can have it as an opportunity to interact with an AI tool, and it's just a way for you to introduce it as far as AI literacy is concerned. It's called. I'm looking at my notes now, but it's called Byte, and it just provides free access for kids for you to introduce it as part of the AI literacy. Um, Codebreaker EDU is the name of the website. Um, it's chat, chat, um, it's chat GPT 3.5 turbo that's connected, but it, you can just interact with it without sharing any personal data as an example. I actually created my own on character.ai and I had my social studies teachers play with it to see it if they could throw it off the rails. I put like 125 different like statements that I wanted it to do as building it. It's like a 30 minute process. You can teach those the, for chatbots. You can teach di basic digital AI literacy using things like that, but don't use it for content. Okay, you know you want to use it as a way to demonstrate what Chat Chat GPT or any other AI tools, generative AI tools you want. Bing is another example. Bard's got an awesome you know new um, new update this week. 
this past week that has been very helpful because it connects to your, your drive. So these are the kinds of things we want to teach our kids in very simple ways that protect student data privacy so that it's not violating anything, but still giving them the opportunity to interact with it to see what it does. At the very minimum, please do that. Yeah. And I, you mentioned uh, being able to connect with the files and documents and stuff that we already have. Uh, that is incredibly powerful. I've been, I, I've taken notes in a tool called, or, well, just plain text notes for uh, well over a decade. And so I have thousands and thousands of notes on meetings and uh, podcast interviews and all this kind of stuff that I've been using for literally years. And I've been able to uh, use a plugin that goes out to ChatGPT and looks up, you know, the relationship between my notes and and can give can surface things that I had totally forgotten that I had written that were that are connected to something that I'm doing today which is an incredibly powerful thing that um, is just mind-blowing how, how cool that is. And, um, and very helpful for me as someone who's constantly creating stuff. I mean, I, this is episode like 570 or something of this podcast. And to go through all of that, when, I've, when, I've, when I transcribed all of uh, the text from this, I believe it was around uh, 2 million words of conversation from and that was 150 episodes ago. So like, it's, it's just crazy how much content there is. And for, you know, someone like me, who's constantly creating, that can be really valuable because I can easily forget what is there and what is beneficial and, and, and also what's not beneficial. So yeah, this has been a great conversation, Micah. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you sharing your wisdom with us. How uh, would you like people to connect with you if they want to chat more? Um, LinkedIn is my favorite uh, favorite place to be when it comes to just having any kind of questions or conversations. ISTE, I'm part of their, uh, you know, ISTE community leaders. That's another place. I'm just getting into that. Uh, but uh, LinkedIn's my favorite. And Jethro, it, it, it's it's so important that you and others keep having conversations about it because every little thing helps us, every one of us build our own capacity. So thank you for yeah. having me. Oh, thank you so much. And there is a link to Micah's uh LinkedIn here in the show notes at Transformative Principles. So make sure that you uh, you go check that out. Thank you so much for being here. Great conversation. And again, we barely scratched the surface, but thank you. <laughs>